0: So we're going to start in uh, Genesis chapter 5 is where we'll begin in our next section. We did about five sections of the Bible at the end of last month, if I'm correct. And today we're going to do another maybe 10 of them. And uh, I guess this is part, this would be part six. All right. And this would be the flood of Noah. All right. So, again, we're just giving an overview to give you a working understanding of the way the Bible is put together. Of course, I'm not giving any of these things justice. We could be spending weeks and weeks. I mean, just if we did, an over, if we did a verse-by-verse verse of Genesis, we'd probably spend like a, a six months you know, just doing that to a year. Just breaking Genesis down. So this is kind of like a drive-by. You're just going to hit you and move on. So um, we go from Cain and Abel to the flood. We don't realize that when we turn that page, about 1,300 years pass. So you got to like put that in perspective. As you're flipping through the book of Genesis, a lot of time might pass as you flip a page in your Bible. And there are really two main characters in this section of the flood account that I want to point out to you because these two main characters point out some very big doctrines for you, and you look at the whole Bible. The first character is Enoch in Genesis 5.24. It says, And Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. So Enoch is going to represent the church for us, and the church is taken up before the flood like Enoch. That's important to know especially in light of all these YouTube knuckleheads that want to tell you that we're going through the tribulation and the rapture is a made-up doctrine, uh, those people are using their Bible pages to smoke reefer because they have no idea what they're talking about uh, because the typology is so they point to a verse. Enoch. Enoch is a picture of the church. In Hebrews chapter 11, verse 5, I'm not going to flip there, but it says that Enoch is the only person to never see death. You understand that? The Bible says he did not see death for he was translated, right? Jesus died. Elijah will come back in the tribulation and die. But Enoch will never see death because Enoch represents believers that are alive at the rapture. If you and I in the next few months or minutes or weeks or years or whatever it is uh, are alive at the coming of the Lord, we are alive and remain, we will never see death. That's amazing, like great... Moses saw death, uh, Paul saw death, you and I, if we live unto the coming of the Lord, which I trust and hope we will, will never see death, and Enoch represents those believers in the church age that will be alive at the rapture. Colossians 1.13 is a good verse to mark down, it talks about the church being translated, He translated us from the kingdom of darkness, from the power of darkness, to the kingdom of his his dear son. Just like Enoch was translated. God uses that word translated to describe Enoch being caught away to describe our conversion experience. So that's the first big character. Enoch representing the church taken up and taken away before the flood. The second big character is in Genesis 6-9. In Genesis 6-9 it says, these are the generations of Noah... Noah was a just man and perfect in his generations, and Noah walked with God. It says Noah also walked with God, but Noah does not represent us. Noah represents tribulation saints. Enoch walked with God. He represents church-age saints. Noah follows him. Noah walks with God, and he represents tribulation saints, different people, right? Now, go to 2 Peter chapter 3. 2 Peter chapter 3. We have said that every verse of the Bible can be interpreted three ways. Historically, doctrinally, and spiritually, or inspirationally. Well, how do we take the flood account? Let's use the flood account and let's just look at it from three different vantage points. Historically, The flood of Noah was a cataclysmic event that changed everything. In 2 Peter 3, it says this in verse 3, Knowing this first, that there shall come in the last days scoffers, walking after their own lusts, and saying, Where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of the creation." So, the scoffer does not want to acknowledge cataclysms. The scoffer does not want to acknowledge Genesis 1, there was a cataclysm there, and Genesis 6, there was a cataclysm there. They don't want to acknowledge that, because they hold to this idea of uniformitarianism. Just sound it out, right? Uniformitarianism, right? This this idea that's evolution prescribes to that if you're an evolutionist you kind of have to prescribe to uniformitarianism u n i f o r m i t a r i a n i s m uniformitarianism all right i don't know just spell it as best you can uniformitarianism uniformitarianism says as things were so they are as things are so they shall be Right Nothing changes. Uh, James Hutton was this big uniformitarian geologist. He said, "As things are, as things were, so things are, as things are, so they shall be. Nothing's going to change." And the Lord's done some serious shakeups to this universe uh, over the last several thousand years. So uh, the flood is one of them. I mean, it changed everything. It changed. The biosphere—it changed probably the length that people lived. It changed a lot, and if you don't acknowledge that, you just try to extrapolate the years back to millions and billions and yada yada yada. But if you you have to acknowledge cataclysmic geology and cataclysms everywhere, that's why we have like fossils on the top of Mount Everest. We could find things out there. That's why we have this radical explosion of creation in the fossil record. All of a sudden, it's like all of a sudden, boom, things start showing up because you have to acknowledge there was cataclysmic events that happened in god's creation so that's historically it happened right it wasn't a local flood it wasn't just like this little rainstorm in the middle east there was a universal flood it flooded the entire earth so what about doctrinally let's go to luke 17. That's a historical look at the fact. And a lot of creation scientists get really into the flood. It's a great study. You, you can glean a lot of things out of the flood. I, I went down that rabbit hole for a while. I, I heard a lot of teachings about the flood and flood geology, and a lot of it's great. It'll bolster your faith to see the, the science supports what you believe. Uh, but doctrinally is what I'm most interested in. And doctrinally, the flood of Noah points to the coming tribulation for Israel. You've got to get that. <laughs> The flood of Noah is the coming tribulation for Israel. Look at Luke 17 and look at 26. Jesus makes that connection for us in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 17, verse 26. He says, And as it was in the days of Noah, or he spells it Noe there, so shall it be also in the days of the Son of Man. So Jesus Christ connects the dots that his coming would be precipitated by a time very much like the time of Noah's before the flood. What was going on before the flood? Rampant wickedness. The world's full of violence. There are giants in the earth, offspring of supernatural creatures in the past, which suggests they will happen again in the future. Daniel chapter 2 suggests that those ten toes of that last kingdom will mingle themselves with the seed of men, so there'll be again a mingling of the seed, just like there was before the flood. Um, Sexual perversion. It was rampant before the flood. That's one of the reasons why God had to drown things out, and we're seeing the rise of that. The violence, right? The devil was very active around the time of the flood, and the devil is very active during the tribulation before Jesus Christ comes, right? The Bible says, Woe unto the inhabitants of the earth, for the devil has come down unto you, having but a short time. So when God kicks Satan out of the second heaven when uh, when the tribulation begins, and he's down here on the earth like a roaring lion roaming about, seeking whom he may devour. I know we like that verse for spiritual things, but doctrinally, he's going to be roaming the earth in the tribulation time, seeking whom he may devour, just like Job chapter 1, when God says, hey, Job, uh, hey, devil, what have you been doing? Oh, just going up and down and to and fro in the earth. Job is a picture of the tribulation. I know my mind is like spitballing and making connections, but hopefully you grab something off of that rant. Right, The flood is the tribulation. If you got that, Amen. you're good to go. All right, I'll show you another verse for that. Isaiah 54. Isaiah 54. I can't wait for the day when, we, when, when our body is changed and we can like look at the Bible and just step back and see all the connections. I mean, right now you try to and your brain starts racing and you, you, know, you just get... You, know, you start, steam starts coming out of your ears and you start to see all the minute connections that God makes. One day you'll have a mind that'll be able to accommodate it and you just step back and be like, whoa, you know, <laughs> you get red-pilled. All right, Isaiah 54 verse 8 is a key verse that shows Noah's flood is a picture of the tribulation. Isaiah 54 8 says, In a little wrath I hid my face from thee for a moment, <clears throat> but with... Um, Everlasting kindness, will I have mercy on thee, saith the Lord thy Redeemer, for this is as the waters of Noah unto me. That wrath that he would show his people for a little while is like the waters of Noah unto me. For as I have sworn that the waters of Noah should no more go over the earth, so have I sworn that I would not be wroth with thee, nor rebuke thee. So what happens to Noah? Noah is hidden and protected through the wrath He's not taken off the earth. He's protected on the earth. That's what's going to happen to that remnant in the tribulation. They're not going to be taken off the earth. They're going to be hidden and protected like Noah through the wrath. They'll be protected through the trouble, that remnant that chooses to follow God in a generation that wants nothing to do with him. Uh, Enoch's taken up, Enoch is out of here Enoch is up in heaven with the Lord That's us, right? So anybody that tells you Oh no, the rapture was made up in the 19th century By this guy And it's not a real Bible doctrine Just smile and nod and say Okay, have a nice day Because they really don't know what they're talking about All the pictures point to this uh, pre-tribulation rapture Uh, Now, we did historical, doctrinal What's a spiritual application of the flood of Noah. It's a great picture of our ark of salvation, Jesus Christ. (laughs) Makes good preaching. I still remember that message Danny did for the nursing home uh, a couple of years ago. He did a great message on the ark of our salvation, Jesus Christ. I mean, a couple of things, right? To get into the ark, you had to go through the door. (laughs) Jesus said, I am the door. By me, if any man enter in, he shall be saved, right? Uh, Once they got in the ark, God sealed them inside of it. Ephesians tells us you are sealed unto the day of redemption, and and on and on and on. You can make connections, and it's good preaching, uh, spiritually speaking. So that's the next section. Let's go to uh, section seven. All right, section seven. All right, section seven is going to be after the flood. All right. All right. Now let's go to Genesis chapter eight. Genesis chapter eight. <clears throat> Genesis chapter 8, verse number 4, we find where the ark comes to rest. It says in Genesis 8, 4, and the ark rested in the seventh month on the 17th day of the month uh, upon the mountains of Ararat. So the ark comes to rest on the mountains of Ararat, which is present-day Turkey. Now, if you look on the handout I gave you with the diagrams on it, they're a little crude, but... The Ark comes to rest at the top of the pyramid for the original Eden. And that original Eden is really the land grant that God gives to Abram. You have a pinnacle over there, that area of Ararat is the top. Then you go all the way over to Egypt, the river of Egypt, the Nile, and then over to Babylon, right? the Euphrates. That giant triangle, which is actually a, you know, a miniature universe, because the universe seems to have that shape with a... Yeah, the universe seems to have that shape. That is the original land grant. And so he lands right at the top of that uh, with the ark. He'd been in the ark for 370 days with all them animals. (laughs) Um, So in chapter 8, very correctly, chapter 8, 8 is the number of a new beginning. And in chapter 8, Noah gets a new beginning. If you go to Genesis 9.1, look at this. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said unto them, Be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth. And lo and behold, God gives Noah a commission, very much like he gave Adam a commission. There are tremendous parallels between the commission to Noah and the commission he gave to Adam. Consider some of those parallels. Both Noah and Adam have three sons. Adam had Cain and Abel and Seth. Noah had Shem and Ham and Japheth. Both have a son who's a type of Christ. Adam had Abel, Noah had Shem, blessed be the Lord God of Shem, and both have a son who's a type of Antichrist. Adam had Cain and Noah had Ham. Both are given the same command. Be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth. Both get in trouble by putting something in their mouth off a vine. Adam takes something off a vine. Noah gets drunk from the vineyard, right? There are lots of, lots of, lots of parallels, which leads me to deduce that both came through a flood. Adam is coming out after that flood that drowned out the universe uh, in Genesis 1-1, and Noah is coming out of a flood that drowned the physical earth in Genesis 6. So it's just God sets up a lot of these parallels here. Look at Genesis 9, look at verse 12. After that commission, it says, And God said, This is the token of the covenant which I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for perpetual generations. I do set my bow in the cloud." So the Lord gives Noah a rainbow. That rainbow is connected to Christ's throne after the great tribulation. The rainbow is not just this fun thing to see when the light diffracts in the, you know, the sprinkles of the rain in the atmosphere. Oh, God's not going to drown us again. No, the rainbow in Ezekiel chapter 1 and Revelation 4 is connected to God's throne. His throne has that that bow above it and around it. So what you're seeing here is Noah is moving into this new world. It's a picture of that kingdom coming, and that rainbow reminds us and points ahead to the coming kingdom that God's going to establish on the earth after the flood of the tribulation. Right? There's all these great parallels. Um, it's amazing that that rainbow has been so perverted and twisted. It's not a coincidence that the rainbow has been taken and hijacked by perverts because it's God's promise of his coming kingdom. So if I'm the devil and I really want to stick a thumb in God's eye, I'm going to take that emblem and that reminder of God's coming kingdom and just invert it and actually have it be adopted by the very people that God drowned during the flood. Those perverts were one of the main reasons why God flooded the earth. And if that word is too strong for you, I'll use a better word that's from the Bible, those sodomites that God used, right? I mean, that, it, is, it was perverse. God said all flesh had corrupted itself, right? doesn't mean you're mean to people that you meet in the store. It just means like that's a Bible truth that God was so disgusted with what was going on it had become so rampant that he had to flood the earth and he gives that rainbow to say, my kingdom's coming and people have hijacked it, which is just sadly ironic. Um, look at Genesis 18, 9, 18. And the sons of Noah that went forth of the ark were Shem and Ham and Japheth, and Ham is the father of Canaan. All right? These are the three sons of Noah, and of them was the whole earth overspread. Noah's three sons populate the whole earth. You see that little diagram also on your sheet. Shem heads east into the Middle East and the Far East. We get our Asians, we get our Eskimos, we get our Indians from Shem. Blessed be the Lord God of Shem. Shem's people tend to be the most spiritual or religiously inclined. All the major religions of the world come from Shem, right? Judaism, Islam, Christianity, they all come from Shem. Blessed be the Lord God of Shem. He tends to be the most spiritual of the group. Ham heads south into Africa. Japheth heads northwest into Europe. And in Genesis, I read a book one time called After the Flood, actually traces the descendants and how you can follow their lines out, and that's, that's really how it lines up. Genesis nine twenty six says, and he said, blessed be the Lord God of Shem, and Canaan shall be his servant. God shall enlarge Japheth, and he shall dwell in the tents of Shem, and Canaan shall be his servant. Um, I don't mean to get controversial here, but God is laying out their history for you, and it's... You know, it's not taking a side, but understanding what God says about these groups, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, just helps you understand history, just empirically. Like, Japheth expanded, like the Caucasian, like, basically took over the world. Ham's descendants were subjected to servitude. Um, The Shemites became this spiritual people that tend to be more connected with God. That's not, you know, one person being racist, that's just being... Empirical. Like that's what happened. God forecast what would happen. And it's just laid out there. Uh, let's go to this part eight. Part eight would be the Tower of Babel. Everybody gets uncomfortable when I do that. The Tower of Babel. All right. And uh, Genesis 10, verse 8. I want you to notice this. It says, And Cush begat Nimrod. He began to be a mighty one in the earth. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Wherefore it is said, Even as Nimrod, the mighty hunter before the Lord, and the beginning of his kingdom, was Babel, and Erech, and Aked, and Kalna, in the land of Shinar. So I want you to notice, please, that in Genesis 10:10, 10, 10, 10 is the number of the Gentile, the first Gentile kingdom appears in Genesis 10.10 10, from a great type of Antichrist, Nimrod. And in Genesis 10.10, 10, please notice that it was at Babel in Shinar. That is present-day Babylon. That is, where, that is a great picture of the Antichrist's kingdom, right? Babylon. Look at Genesis 11. Let's see what they start doing. And the whole earth was of one language and of one speech, and it came to pass as they journeyed from the east that they found a plain in the land of Shinar, and they dwelt there. And they said one to another, Go, to, and let us, let us make brick and burn them throughly. And they had brick for stone, and slime had they for mortar. And they said, Go, to, let us build us a city and a tower whose top may reach unto heaven, and let us make us a name, unless we be scattered abroad upon the face of the whole earth. So notice, please, That the Antichrist kingdom that's pictured here has a city and a tower. The city is the political aspect of the kingdom. You see that in Revelation 18, the political Babylon, right? That's buying and selling and making merchandise and ruling over the kings of the earth. The tower is the religious side or the spiritual side of the Antichrist kingdom. Revelation 17, verse 5, talks about mystery Babylon. That's the spiritual aspect of the Antichrist kingdom. This is the grand imitation of God's kingdom. Because remember from our earlier lessons, God's kingdom has these two aspects, the kingdom of God, which is spiritual, the kingdom of heaven, which is political. So the Antichrist, the devil being the great imitator, has a city, that's a political aspect to his kingdom, and a tower, that's a spiritual aspect to his kingdom, just like God. Christ is going to do. Verse 3, they're making it out of brick. Please notice these are never the materials that God builds with. Sorry if you're into masonry, but God never builds with brick. Brick is connected to Egypt. They build those pyramids out of brick. Egypt is a type of the world. Exodus 5, they use brick. What does God always build with? He always builds with stone. Stone is God-made. Brick is man-made. That's a whole lesson in there. God builds with stone. That's, he makes that. He forges that in the earth. Brick is man's work. It's man forging something. And as always, what's happening in this account, which you don't realize when you hear about it in Sunday school, God is moving, and the devil is moving to oppose him. We said that was one of our big ideas about the Bible. Think about it. Noah's time dealt with the sons of God coming down and God drowns their offspring. Then we got Noah's ark opens up and a little while afterwards, you've got one of Noah's descendants, one of Ham's descendants, Nimrod was the grandson of Ham. One of Ham's descendants is trying to contact the sons of God again. That's what the tower was for. They're trying to bring them down again. They're trying to get up there and make contact with them again. That's what it was all about. It wasn't just, let's see how high we could go. No, they're trying to contact the sons of God again and bring them down again and reestablish that worship and that connection with them again. That's what the Tower of Babel was, an attempt to bring the sons of God down again. We're still doing it. We're still doing it today. We have a SETI institute, S-E-T-I. They are constantly monitoring and sending out broadcasts and monitoring the universe for signals from extraterrestrial life. They're trying to build a tower to reach unto heaven. They're not just building a physical tower anymore. They're doing it with radios and satellites and all this high-tech stuff. But they're trying to—they're sending these probes out there. They're sending these signals out there. Read about it. Look it up. They're trying to monitor the universe for any kind of signals because they suppose that the other life forms must be so far advanced beyond us that we're trying to see if there's any signals out there. What are do they doing? It, they're trying to make contact with something out there again Man is just constantly Anything but God They'll worship anything but God Because God's holy But these ones, these sky brothers That might take us over the gap Or get us to the new age They're trying to make contact with them uh, You read about some of these books Charity of the Gods they Read about these books that these guys wrote These new age people they're, they're trying to reach out to someone or something Just not your savior They're trying to bring in a one world government That's what they're doing there <laughs> And God breaks them up. God confounds them. He slows man down. And for the past several thousand years, they've just been trying to get back to the Tower of Babel. Man just coming together. Globalism, the rise of globalism in the last couple of hundred years. Just the lack of sovereignty among nations. Just let's all be one. The United Nations, right? There was your original United Nations right there. You should tell from there what God feels about the United Nations. It is a godless, depraved, antichrist organization that wants to try to bring in nirvana without the God who is the Prince of Peace. So anything they do, you pretty much just bet on the fact that God's dead set against it. Um, Let me get off my soapbox and just go on a little bit. The Bible says in Acts, one more time on this one, let me just plug this one more in with feeling, all right? Acts 17 says, God determined the times before appointed and the bounds of people's habitation, God said, I want some people over here and some people over there. Why? That they should seek the Lord. All this coming together, all this one world stuff, it's not leading anybody closer to Jesus Christ. It's leading us further away from him. It's antichrist. So just put that in your pipe and smoker the next time you hear John Lennon's song about imagine all the people. right? That's, that's a wicked song. Um, Genesis, let's go to our next section. Imagine there's no heaven. Imagine there's no hell. It's easy if you try. Yeah, sure. It's easy to go to hell, too. Um, Jen, the next section, nine, is Abraham and the patriarchs. Man, that, that Bible is so relevant. 6,000 years ago, that, that's written, and it's, it's so relevant. It's, it was, man, whoever wrote that Bible saw the future. <laughs> Whoever wrote that Bible wrote it in such a way that if you wanted to know what was up, you could find it out. Somebody on Thursday night was asking me, like, how do you know this and how do you know that from the Bible? I said, well, you got to, like, study some things out and connect it. The Bible is written in such a way to see how bad you want to know the truth. You can get salvation easy. That's easy, because God wants all to be saved. He's not willing that any should perish. That's easy. A couple of verses here and there, four or five verses out of Romans. You could show somebody how to be saved. But you want to understand the world around you? What's going on in the world? you want to interpret the news? You're going to have to get out your shovel and your pick and do a little bit of digging. That's why you've got to be a workman that needeth not to be ashamed. But God's wise. He just proves it. It's not, you know, the casual reader will give up, but the one that really wants it, he'll search for, like, dig tre- uh, for, for treasure. Uh, Genesis 12. Now the Lord had said unto Abram, Get thee out of thy country and from thy kindred. Very important and from thy father's house unto a land that I will show thee, and I will make of thee a great nation, and I will bless thee and make thy name great, and thou shalt be a blessing. And I will bless them that bless thee and curse him that curseth thee, and in thee shall all the families of the earth be blessed. So the devil leads God and provokes God to scatter the world at the Tower of Babel. So what does God do? He chooses one man to start his people, Abram. Abram's name means high father. He's going to start a family now. High father. The Lord is focusing on the family. Long before the broadcast, the Lord is focusing on the family, and he's trying to get a people now, and he's trying to form a people that's going to become his nation. But he starts with that family. He starts with the people. The Lord calls him out of Ur, which is right by Baghdad, right by Babylon, and into an area by Jerusalem. Jerusalem. Look at Genesis 18. And look at verse 17. Genesis 18, verse 17. And the Lord said, said, Shall I hide from Abraham that thing which I do, seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him? For I know him, that he will command his children and his household after him. And they shall keep the way of the Lord to do justice and judgment that the Lord may bring upon Abraham that which he hath spoken of him. So Abraham was faithful in his house, so the Lord chooses him for his house. Right, he saw something in Abraham. He said, wow, he's, he's good with his family. He could be the head of my family. And in Genesis 13, verse 1, if you go to back to Genesis 13, he told them to get away from your kindred. <clears throat> But in Genesis 13, it says, and Abram went up out of Egypt, he and his wife and all that he had, and Lot with him, right? He didn't let go of Lot. He held on to Lot, and you see that he's got problems as long as he's got Lot with him. Verse 7, there's a strife, and finally in verse 7, they separate. And that's good preaching right there because when God says, follow me, he says, let everything go. We want to hold on to that Lot, <laughs> want to hold on to like, well, this is, you know, it's my nephew. I just want to hold on to Lot. He's a good boy. He's, he's going to be a good boy. You know, he pinch his cheeks. No, God says, leave your kindred. And uh, once he lets go of Lot, then, verse 14 of chapter 13, God speaks to him again and says, and the Lord said unto Abram, after that Lot was separated from him, lift up now thine eyes. And look from the place where thou art, northward and southward and eastward and westward. For all the land which thou seest, to thee will I give it and to thy seed forever. 16, I will make thy seed as the dust of the earth, so that if a man can number the dust of the earth, then shall thy seed also be numbered. So after Lot goes out, the Lord gives Abram this promise. And the promise the Lord makes to Abram is twofold. Please notice, it's twofold. Genesis 13, 16, he says, your seed will be as the dust of the earth, the dust, physical, earthly. Those are the physical descendants that Abraham would have, the children of Israel. But then if you go to Genesis 15, in verse 5, he also says this. In Genesis 15, 5, it says, and he brought him forth abroad and said, look now toward heaven and tell the stars. If thou be able to number them, and he said unto him, so shall thy seed be. So on the one hand, his seed would be the dust of the earth. He'd have physical earthly descendants, i.e. the children of Israel, but also tell the stars, so shall thy seed be. Heavenly, he'd have spiritual descendants as well. That's us. We're all children of Abraham by faith. And so he would have that twofold aspect of that inheritance. Genesis 15, 6, amazing verse. And he believed in the Lord, and he counted it to him for righteousness. Abram's imputed righteousness is a picture of our salvation. When Paul is looking for a picture of our salvation, he doesn't go to Moses, he doesn't go to Elijah, he goes all the way back before the law to Abram. Abraham believing in the Lord, and God counting that for righteousness. Right? The Bible says in Romans 4, I think verse 4 or 5, to him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly, it is counted unto him for righteousness. Now, look, now here's what happens, Genesis 16. What does the enemy get the man of God to do? He gets the man of God to doubt God's word. You would think after that, everything would be easy peasy. Oh no. The enemy gets the man of God to doubt God's word. And Sarai I said unto Abram, behold now, Genesis 16 2. The Lord hath restrained me from bearing. I pray thee, go in unto my maid. It may be that I may obtain children by her. And Abraham hearkened to the voice of Sarai. I don't see much of a debate there. He just seems to be like, okay. And uh, Abram listened to his wife instead of listening to the Lord, just like Adam. Adam did the same thing, right? Oh, oh you want to have some? Oh, okay. And here we are. Um, Genesis sixteen eleven, And the angel of the Lord said unto her, meaning Hagar Behold, thou art with child, and shalt bear a son, and shalt call his name Ishmael, because the Lord hath heard thy affliction. He will be a wild man. His hand will be against every man, and every man's hand against him, and he shall dwell in the presence of his brethren. Right? There are your Palestinians right there. Abraham's unbelief gives birth to a people that is still a problem for Abraham's people today. Amazing, isn't it? The Bible is so amazing. It's like so true. It's so right. Uh, A wild man, violent, dwelling right there in the midst of the children of Israel. Uh, They're right there in the same land as they are, but just wild and violent, etc. Go to Genesis 17 right there. It says, and when Abram was 90 years old, and nine. (laughs) So at age 99, Abraham gets his promised seed. And the Lord is establishing the number nine as the number of fruit bearing." Like a woman carries her fruit for nine months, there are ninefold fruit of the Spirit. In Galatians 5, verses 22 and 23, 22 and 23 of Galatians 5 has the nine fruit of the Spirit. 22 plus 23, 2 plus 2 plus 2 plus 3 is nine. I'm sure it's a coincidence. Galatians 5, 22 and 23. We believe and hold to the King James Bible from 1611. 1 plus 6 plus 1 plus 1, again, is the number 9. Um, I'm sure it's just an accident. Um, and then he names him in verse 19, he names him Isaac, which means laughter or laughed. So what does God do? He lets you remember his, your foolishness. Because Abraham laughed, Sarai laughed. So he says, I'm going to name your son Laughter. So every time you look at Isaac, you can remember how foolish you were for doubting me. Amen. Uh, In Luke chapter 16, verse 24, Abraham is called Father Abraham. He is the formation. We're seeing now the formation of the nation of Israel. Not the calling out, but the formation of the nation of Israel. And you know the genealogy. Isaac, he has a child, Isaac. Isaac takes a wife named Rebekah. Rebekah has two sons, Jacob, who becomes Israel, and Esau. Jacob has 12 sons, which become the 12 tribes of Israel. Jacob is that deceiver who becomes, he gets a new name, Israel. And then Jacob's son, Joseph, becomes the focus for the rest of the book of Genesis, chapters 37 to 50. He's really all about Joseph, except for one chapter, 38. But it's all about Joseph. Joseph has the longest uninterrupted narrative of anybody really in the Bible. Look at Genesis 46. Genesis 46, 26. I know we're doing some low-level flying here. Genesis 46, 26. Genesis 46, 26. And all the souls that came with Jacob into Egypt, which came out of his loins beside Jacob's son's wives, all the souls were threescore and six. So God's prophecy to Abraham is fulfilled. He prophesied that his descendants would go down into Egypt. Way back in Genesis 15, he said your people will be afflicted 400 years in Egypt. And they go down into Egypt, and they will be afflicted for those 400 years. But please notice, 66 souls go down. The number 66, ring a bell, is that connected with anything? Of course it is. You've got 66 books in your Bible. It's a picture of the Word of God going down into the world. And you know what happens? 430 years later, 2 million people come out. So when you take this book and you bring it into the world, you know what happens? You get fruit. (laughs) That's the picture that's being portrayed there. All right, last section we'll do before we break. Section 10. Um, Israel in Egypt. All right. Israel in Egypt. Section 10. And it says, if you go to Exodus chapter 1, verse 8. Exodus 1, 8 says, Now there arose up a new king over Egypt, which knew not Joseph. Now think about it. God sent Israel into Egypt to be forged into a nation. He said, I'll put you in the furnace to try to strengthen you and and, and make you into a nation. The devil moved them to become slaves. So again, God wants to forge them into a nation. The devil just wants to subjugate them as slaves because when God is always moving, the devil is always moving to oppose him. Exodus chapter 3, verse 1. Now Moses kept the flock of Jethro, his father in law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the backside of the desert and came to the mountain of God, even to Oreb. And the angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a flame of fire. That's Jesus Christ appearing. At the midst of a bush, and he looked, and behold, the bush burned with fire, and the bush was not consumed. So the devil lets them become slaves unto Pharaoh, a great type of the devil and a type of antichrist. The Lord sends them a deliverer named Moses. There is more about Moses in the Old Testament than any other character. Moses is the chief character in the Old Testament. There's more about him than any other character in the Old Testament. Notice, Moses meets God in a burning bush. That burning bush is a picture of Israel. The burning bush is a picture of Israel, burned but not consumed. That nation has faced the fire for millennia, but they're still here. That's amazing, right? Right? That crazy Austrian tried to kill him. Uh, the Russians sent pogroms to try to destroy them uh, for just for millennia. They've been scattered, they've been hunted, they've been in vagabonds, they've been in ghettos, right? They've been, they haven't had a nation until about 70-something uh, years ago, but they're still here. Amen. The fact that there is a nation called Israel and a Jew still exists. Who are the Babylonians? Find them for me, would you? Where are the Persians? I mean, I know where they probably still are, but we don't have a nation called Assyria anymore, right? The Ming Dynasty is not here anymore. But the Jews and the nation of Israel still stands, right? The Jew is a great testimony to the fact that your Bible is the word of God because only the Bible foresaw that this nation would be regathered in 1948 and still stand here today and be on the precipice of meeting their Messiah. And so they were burned but not consumed. And in Exodus 3 to 4, Moses makes excuses. Yeah, we could be, that's a great message. If you want to study the excuses that you and I come up with. Moses made the same ones several thousand years ago. So God gives him Aaron to help. Then Exodus 5 to 10, that's Moses' contest with Pharaoh. Then Exodus 12, let's go there. Well, that'll be our last passage we'll look at today, the morning session anyway. Exodus 12, let's look at this familiar passage. If you listen to Pastor Dean preach at least once, you've heard this outline, right? It's a good outline, it's good stuff. Right, here's the Passover instructions for the Passover. Exodus twelve, three. Speak ye unto all the congregation of Israel, saying, In the tenth day of this month they shall take to them every man a lamb. So the need for a sacrifice to be delivered. Verse 4. And if the household be too little for the lamb, so it was a specific sacrifice that God required, not just any lamb, but the lamb. Behold, the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. You can't do it, I can't do it, and anybody else can't do it. And then in verse number five, it says, your Lamb. That you have to personalize that sacrifice. Great outline. A Lamb, the Lamb, your Lamb. The need for a sacrifice, the need for the specific sacrifice, and the need for you to appropriate that sacrifice upon the doorposts of your own heart. So they go down into Egypt and are now making their way to the promised land as God calls them out by the blood of a lamb. This now is the calling out of the nation. We've had the formation under Abram, and now the calling out with Moses. And what follows in the next few chapters is a beautiful picture of the Christian life. Think about it. In Exodus 12, the lamb is slain and souls are delivered from death. Hallelujah. Amen? Have you been delivered by the blood of a lamb? Then in Exodus 13, verse 1, if you look at it, the first command to those that have been saved by the blood of a lamb is to sanctify themselves. If you and I have been saved and washed in the blood of Jesus Christ, God wants us to sanctify ourselves, to carry forth the filthiness out of this place, to separate ourselves from this wicked world all around us. Sanctification. 1 Thessalonians 4.3, For this is the will of God, even your sanctification. Exodus 14, they are baptized out of the world. They grow through that Red Sea. They're separated from Pharaoh forever. A picture of our separation from the world forever. In Exodus 15, they get a new song. Like you have a new song, Psalm 40, right? He hath put a new song in my mouth, even praise unto our God. We have something to sing about now. I never sang about God before I got saved. Those of us that were Catholic, you know, you went to Mass, you never sang. The cantor sang. You just mouthed the words, you know. Mm-hmm you know you just kind of just mouth them you didn't nobody sang loud with any gusto or zeal then i came to church in staten island i saw people singing loud i started singing loud i started sitting next to my wife she goes you sing really loud i said yeah i sing loud i'm saved. i came out of the hell hole called the catholic church we didn't sing we just mumbled out of our breath and looked at our watch for 45 minutes and said oh we got this priest today he likes to talk long you know, that's what life was like it was, i see the catholics in the room going that was it you know 45 minutes, I'm going to eat. Come on, let me get the cookie and get out of here. Right, that was the thing. So we sing now. Exodus 16, they're hungry. So God gives them manna, type of the word of God, for those hungry souls. And then in Exodus 17, they get into a battle with the flesh i.e. Amalek, and they learn the power of prayer. Moses lifts up those hands, and uh, Aaron and Hur help them, and you know what? That's a picture of you praying in the battle. As long as those hands were held up, you won. When you dropped them, you lost. And as long as you pray it through, you could win. As long as when you stop praying, you lose. So in the wilderness of this world, the water's no good, the food's no good, and you need to be sustained supernaturally by the God who called you out of the furnace. That's the whole story of Exodus. The water's no good. It's mara, it's bitter. Got to put that tree into the water to make it sweet. Picture of the cross. The food's no good. You got to get him, med, med, manna from heaven. And the only thing that's going to sustain you is the same God that took you out of the furnace to begin with. So what great lessons there that you can meet out as you study your Bible. Let's pray and then we'll take a, a 10 or 12 minute break here until 10.30. Lord, we. Love